Hi, I'm Nick. And I'm Rob. We're a writing team from New Jersey with a passion for film. An aggressive, all-consuming passion. Well, whenever we see a news article we find, like, insane, uh, immediately it's... How can we make a movie out of this? Every episode we read a crazy article from different sources and tumble down our own rabbit hole. Discussing cast, crew, and plot. And then we hash out a pitch for a feature film. So, join us as we BS about movies and ask the important question... What do you got? What do you got? Welcome, everybody, ladies and gentlemen, anyone in between. Thank you for joining us. This is episode 37 of What Do You Got? We are a week late. We apologize for that. A lot of things happened, a lot of plans and stuff. Uh, we are going to be changing the post date for our episodes. Usually we do every other Thursday. We're actually going to be switching that to every other Saturday. So when you're listening to this, it should be. Uh, October 2nd. So happy Halloween. Welcome to October. Um, we're going to stick with <laughs> Saturday schedules, I think, just because the it's whole Halloween. month is Halloween. <laughs> I mean, honestly, yes. Um, but I think we're going to stick to Saturday schedules just because it's a little bit better for us to make sure that we can get the episode ready for the weekend, um, as opposed to putting it out midweek when we're working. Um, yeah, that's I just wanted to get that out of the way so that we now know in advance housekeeping rules and regulations uh things like that um how you been rob oh i've been excellent thank you for asking good i'm glad you've been good it's been a little while since we've chatted got anything else you want to talk about i'm very excited for this episode i, I learned <laughs> some shit uh, historically that i was as not did aware I. of as now did i'm a little I. bit freaked out <laughs> so uh this episode today is brought to you by me um, I've pitched this one and this one I found recently, uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm a big fan of Alice in Wonderland. It's one of my favorite children's books of all time. If not my favorite, it's probably, do you, my do favorite. you like, which do you like better? Do you like Alice in Wonderland or through the looking glass? It's really tough. I think through the looking glass is better, but it's more mature. I it think. is. It is for sure. Um, but I, I love both of them. I, whenever, Whenever I read them, I read them together. I don't like just read one and then like let it go. I'll usually read them as one book for the most part. Um, and I've read them multiple times, obviously. Um, speaking of Alice in Wonderland, as that is not a tangent, that is actually sort of what this episode is about. Uh, the author of Alice in Wonderland, as many may know as Lewis Carroll, uh, birth name as Charles Ludwig Dodgson, um, was actually... Dodgson. We got Dodson here. <laughs> See, nobody, nobody cares. cares. <laughs> they named um, him after him. <laughs> um, he was actually suspected of being a very famous, mysterious killer back in the late 1800s in London. I'm sure. Oh, which one? Guess what I'm what I'm going for there. Uh, his name was Jack the Reaper, and he was a man notorious for killing at least five different women, most of the prostitute variety. Um, during the late 1880s in London. Uh, as you all know, I'm sure, and if you don't, you should probably read a book, uh, Jack the Ripper was never caught. Uh, there were many, many suspects, uh, but no one was ever actually charged with the murders. It is one of the most famous unsolved mysteries of all time. And apparently Lewis Carroll was Jack the Ripper, according to some, let's call them mm, crazies. Um <laughs> They there made, is they made a compelling case for a while as I was reading this. I started un, to be like, oh my god. Until the end. Yep, um, right up until the end. 
and we're going to get into that right now. Um, so again, the author of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, uh, Lewis Carroll, uh, projected a quiet presence, tolling away as a lifelong bachelor and Oxford math teacher until his death in 1898. I actually didn't know he was a math teacher at Oxford. Oh, yeah. Weird tangents I'll, I'll, I'll give you about him before we get into the meat of this. Um, as a mathematician, he got really annoyed by the then new concepts of like uh, abstract mathematics and imaginary numbers and stuff that didn't hmm. make sense in like a classical mathematical sense or physical sense. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where Alice in Wonderland came from. A little bit. He was oh, almost really? passive aggressively being like, "Okay, if the numbers don't have to make sense, <laughs> and I, the, the oh, there's a jabberwock." Like it, it was, it was so, almost passive aggressive. The entire tea party scene was just him saying, "Fuck you, math." Yeah, fuck you. <laughs> All this goddamn new math that doesn't have to make sense. What it's do you like mean? In, non-Euclidean geometry. It's Incredibles too. Why did they change math? <laughs> <laughs> um. So, uh, yes, he was an Oxford math teacher uh, until his death. Uh, he originally wrote Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And uh, as, as Rob mentioned earlier, for those who don't know, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland is actually two books. Uh, it is Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Alice Through the Looking Glass. Through the Looking Glass is the sequel and the one that Tim Burton decided to make the first movie, even though it's a sequel, but made it the original as if the original hadn't happened, question mark. I, th- I think he just didn't want to work with child actors. Yeah, he also didn't understand Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> I don't, I don't, yeah, that's a tangent. I don't want to go in on that one. Yeah, um, <laughs> I honestly have no problems with Tim Burton. I have a lot of problems with Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland uh, and his sequel, which was not through the looking glass, but was through the looking glass, even though the first movie. All right, we're going to get past that. Um, (laughs) Perhaps it was Carol's genteel persona that invited some scandalous theories about his life. Uh, As we go forward through this article, this article is written by one Jake Rosen uh, back from 2018. Uh, It's on mentalfloss.com. As always, link in the description. Uh, Beginning in the 1930s, Carol's uh, Carol biographers wondered about the subversive pro drug message of Alice. For those who don't know, the man was whacked out on acid and LSD while he wrote these books. Um, In 1996, author Richard Wallace, who we're going to spend most of our time with discussing this, uh, we're going to spend it mostly with him. uh, He went a step further. The clinical social worker and part-time Carol scholar wrote a book in which he offered the theory that something truly sinister lurked in Carol's mind and that he had a second alter ego, that of Jack the Ripper. Imagine so now, calling yourself a part-time scholar. Yeah, right? I, like, I find I'm, that I'm a part-time funny. fucking scholar of the Transformers by that. <laughs> I am a part-time Seinfeld scholar. And you are not a part-time Seinfeld scholar. No, I'm not. Scholar. I'm a full-time scholar. Your, yeah, if you were drawing a salary for that, you would live in a penthouse on the Upper East Side. <laughs> upper East Side? Uh, you mean Upper West Side, where Jerry lives, 129 West 81st Street, right? God, That's what you were saying? God damn it. I walked headfirst into that shit. <laughs> Uh, so now whenever i think of jack the ripper though all i'm gonna think about is the mad hatter and just kind of lewis carroll dressed up as him kind of like tiptoeing and giggling through the back streets of london while he murders prostitutes well now we have to write a victorian batman (laughs) i mean Uh, well there there has been batman versus jack the ripper so there's the start um the ripper murders took place in 1888 in london's white chapel district although some believe the killer was active as late as 1891 uh, again, there were only, uh, quote unquote, at least five women 
um, mutilated and murdered, which I always am brought back to the Kyle Kinane bit where he goes on the Jack the Ripper tour and they're like waiting for like all the, the speeches and stuff. And the guy goes, yeah, where he killed at least five women. And Kinane just goes, what? I'm from America. We have someone killing five people right now. <laughs> he's about to get to six <laughs> the mystery assailant murdered and mutilated at least five winning women excuse me um I, i'm gonna i'm gonna read through this article uh, warning for anyone who has a, a weak stomach some of it is graphic obviously this was a murderer uh pulling out intestines and generally behaving as a vivisectionist who was being timed a sensational story of its era the attacks have remained some of the most infamous crimes in history with relatively little evidence to pursue, the list of suspects was substantial. Uh, William Gull, Queen Victoria's personal physician, had knowledge of human anatomy. A scrap metal merchant named James Maverick allegedly left a diary confessing to the murders. Some connections were incredibly tenuous. A man named Charles Cross was suspected in part because the murders took place between his house and workplace. Some reason that a casual stroll home could have apparently been livened up with a brutal killing, which just begs the question that this guy was like, ah, it's a nice brisk fall day. You know what? I'm going to get my steps in and uh, maybe a murder or two. Just walking through the back alleys of London. Keep the, uh, keep the old hands in good shape. <laughs> it is so, it's so strange though, because like they, they had so little to go off of. Obviously this is the late 1800s. There's no DNA. There's no blood analysis. There's no fingerprinting, anything like that. So the only things they could go off of are what they found in any type of connections. But when you're looking at connections with prostitutes, especially in the late 1800s, London, there's going to be a lot of people that probably knew about them. So all of these suspects are just like, uh, who else we got? Well, this guy lived down the street. Sure, throw him on the list. <laughs> my, my absolute favorite is the uh, Dr. Hull um, theory, uh, the surgeon to the, to the queen. Because did you ever, you might have seen the movie, but did you ever read Alan Moore's From Hell? No, but that's the one with Johnny Depp, right? Yeah, they made a movie. Mm-hmm. It's not a very good movie, but the, the book is really cool. Because basically what he's supposing in in From Hell is that it was the Queen's doctor, uh, hmm. Hull, who was essentially um, covering up the fact that one of the princes had impregnated a prostitute who was hmm. trying to keep it. And he was basically silencing all of the other prostitutes who were going to use this for blackmail, which oh. I love as a theory. Oh, I thought it was going to be like he didn't know which prostitute. So he was just like, all right, process of elimination. We just got to keep going. <laughs> no, he did it. To, he did it to everyone who who knew about this kid. And he was also like secretly a Freemason. So it was part of, of some course. like occult ritual to maintain uh, <laughs> patriarchal dominance into the 20th century. That sounds about right for British royalty. Um, <laughs> of the names discussed, few would be more surprising than Lewis Carroll's. Born in 1832, he was sent to a boarding school at the age of 12 and sometimes wrote home expressing despondence over the nighttime racket. In Wallace's book, Jack the Ripper, Lighthearted Friend, he seizes, which is a weird title, he seizes this declaration. Uh, that's, um, that's a line from one of the letters that he sent to, uh, oh, okay. to the newspapers. <laughs> okay. So it was okay. kind of the OG Zodiac makes yes that's true it makes more sense which i would love to do well we can't really do an episode on zodiac because fincher perfected that but something similar to that um he seizes the declaration to be a hint that carol was being physically abused by the older boys at school suffering a psychotic break that would plague him for the rest of his life a lot of this guy's theories as we go forward 
are really wildly out there. Um, he doesn't have much. It's all circumstantial. There's not much to go off of that, like, proves anything. Um, and you'll 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 hear that as we continue it's, to go through. It's, this. it's very sensational, though. Yeah, it is very sensational. the The one thing I didn't get from this article uh, was that I believe from other readings I've I've done, uh, Carol was actually suspected during the time of Jack the Ripper, not just a hundred years after when people are like, "Oh, maybe it was him." Yeah, I um, think someone brought it up. Yeah, yeah, there was like one or two people who did posit it could have been him at the time of it happening. Um, uh, Wallace's theory uh, requires a large and ambitious leap to a conclusion, which is what we're about to get into that Carol famously fond of wordplay and anagrams kept sneaking hidden messages into his correspondence and his published works that provided insight into his state of mind, rearranging letters from a missive to his brother Skeffington Wallace finds a plea for help. Now, like it says, there is a huge leap to this conclusion. I I find no evidence of this as at the very end of this article, you'll see someone else wrote about how this is obviously ridiculous and can easily be, uh, you know, uh, persuaded, however you want to put it. Uh, so the quote that is written from Lewis Carroll to his brother is, my dear Skeff, roar not lest thou be abolished. And what um, Wallace rearranged that to become in an anagram was ask mother about the red lion safer boys fled. The red lion was a game played at Carol's boarding school. One that Wallace suspected was sexual in nature and left Carol burning with fury towards his mother and father who had sent him to the school and towards society at large. After publishing Alice in 1865, Carol continued to teach at Oxford, simmering Wallace believes, with violent intent and possibly confiding his bloodthirst to his lifelong friend Thomas Bain. At the time of the Ripper's murders in 1888, Carol published The Nursery Alice, a version of the Wonderland story meant for younger children. In it, Wallace says Carol confesses to the gruesome murders being perpetuated, setting about deciphering a suspected anagram from one passage. Wallace pulled the following, quote, if I find one street whore, you know what will happen. Twill be off with her head. That's hilarious to me because <laughs> imagine he actually was Jack the Ripper. And he's like, if Jack the Ripper had written all these letters to the police and just used like the Queen of Hearts and the Red Queen, like quotes from the stories. <laughs> that would be that's, that's how you know brilliant. that he definitely wasn't the Ripper, because if you read those letters, they're full of spelling errors. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, in the same book, Carol offers what appears to be a throwaway message about a dog declining a dinner. Quote, so we went to the cook and we got her to make a saucer full of nice oatmeal porridge. And then we called Dash into the house and we said, now, Dash, you're going to have your birthday treat. We expected Dash would jump for joy, but it didn't one bit. Blending the letters as he has one to do, Wallace retrieves the following, quote, Oh, we, Thomas Bain, Charles Dodgson, coited into the slain nude body, expected to taste, devour, enjoy a nice meal of a dead whore's uterus. We made do, fond of it all, found it awful, wan, uh, wane and tough like a worm, sorry, like a worn, dirty goat hog. We both threw it out, Jack the Ripper. Again, with paragraphs like this, it is easily plausible to pull whatever letters you want and change it into whatever sentences you want. It 100%. Is the, yeah, it is the theory of the number 23. If you start thinking about it, you will start to notice it in everything. 
It's the moment in Inception when Joseph Gordon-Levitt says, don't think about purple elephants. What are you going to do? You're going to think about purple elephants. It's all about putting it into the subconscious. Wallace in his mind had his signed confession, albeit one extracted from a pile of letters, but there was more. Carol's mother was said to have a large protuberant nose, which Carol must have envisioned when the Ripper mutilated the nose of two of his victims. What a reach. His personal <laughs> library contained more than 120 books on medicine, anatomy, and health, providing he was the educated, uh, provided providing him with the education one would need to vivisect his victims. As with most high society, especially during the time of the late 1800s, a lot of books, I believe, were about medicine and anatomy and stuff that riddled people's libraries. There was not as much fiction back then as there is I mean, now. Sure. I'm sure he had a, I mean, he was an Oxford professor. I'm sure exactly. he had a personal library. Right, exactly. Geographically, Carroll was within public transport's distance from his home to the murder sites. Of course, so were hundreds of thousands of other people. Uh, the fact that the Ripper's letters to the newspaper didn't appear to be handwriting matched when compared to Carroll's diary entries didn't dissuade Wallace. Someone, perhaps his close friend Bain, could have written them on his behalf. Perhaps 1996 wasn't quite the year for far-fetched, uh, far-reaching theories as Wallace failed to gain much traction. When Carol appears as one of the laundry list of Ripper suspects, offers widely refused to him as unlikely. There was one notable <laughs> response, and this is what I was talking about earlier as we stated. After a brief explanation of Wallace's research in the 1996 issue of Harper's Magazine, two readers wrote in to respond with a compelling counter-argument. Wallace's own words in his piece state, quote, This is my story of Jack the Ripper the man behind Britain's worst unsolved murders. It is a story that points to the unlikeliest of suspects, a man who wrote children's stories. That man is Charles, Do Charles Dodgson, better known as Lewis Carroll, author of such beloved books as Alice in Wonderland. That is a five-line paragraph that was reworked by these two readers and could be arranged to read, quote, The truth is I, Richard Wallace, stabbed and killed a muted Nicole Brown in cold blood, severing her throat with my trusty Shiv's strokes. I set up Ornithal James Simpson, who is utterly innocent of this murder. P.S. I also wrote Shakespeare's sonnets and a lot of Francis Bacon's work, too. So... <laughs> That, that proves exactly that this kind of anagram, this kind of reworking, it just it does not hold up. There's five lines of a paragraph. You can change that to say whatever you want. Imagine <laughs> being that guy and opening a magazine and seeing yourself be so utterly dragged. <laughs> the best part is the final line of the article is just Wallace never commented on the matter. <laughs> <laughs> maybe he did actually kill nicole brown maybe oj is innocent it's a, oh <laughs> shit <laughs> oh god what have we started um so that is the uh that is the article um it is i would say it's probably a little bit different from what we normally do because this is a we haven't done many conspiracy theories if any um and this one is a very far-fetched one it's not one that holds a lot of standing um, so this one is definitely different and interesting. But again, I was drawn to the part about Lewis Carroll and obviously being suspected to be one of the greatest murders of all time. Um, so I wanted to dig into that a little bit uh, on the podcast here and see what we can come up with. I truly can't wait to see what your disease brain has come up with. So I will <laughs> ask the question, Nick, what do you got? All right. So what I did was I immediately put this into a mystery, a murder mystery whodunit um, in the vein of Knives Out and anything Hercule Poirot, anything like that. Sold. Immediately sold. Um, it is a movie that takes place in the 1880s in New York. 
um, and is a very, uh, very closely based on the Players Club uh, on Gramercy Park in New York, which was founded by Edwin Booth, John Wilkes Booth's brother, um, who obviously famously shot and killed Abraham Lincoln. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, John Wilkes Booth and Edwin Booth were both very famous actors at the time. Uh, Edwin Booth is actually hailed as possibly one of the greatest actors to have ever lived and to have portrayed Shakespearean characters. They were very famous. Um, so it's not like John Wilkes Booth was some rando. There's oh, yeah. a lot that you could read on that. All, um, all of the Booths were in a production of, I think it was Julius Caesar together. Yeah. Uh, and it was basically the Ocean's Eleven of its day. Like, look at all these yeah. stars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's like the same as like Edwin Booth is on par with like Kenneth Branagh in terms of like fame and like, you know, respect. Um, so he founded in 1888 the Players Club uh, on Gramercy Park in New York City. And that is still around today. I've actually performed there a couple times. It's absolutely beautiful. It's a three story brownstone um, with a gorgeous gorgeous personal library you know mahogany red leather bound books you know the whole anchorman uh spiel um and beautiful paintings that kind of like house the walls of the uh of the hallways as you go up the staircase there's paintings of all these different famous people who have been there jack lemon walter Matthau, all those names uh, it's a really beautiful place you can visit it uh they do small tours it's not that big um, but I based my setting exactly on the Players Club, and it's my club is literally called the Society of Players. Um, so in the 1880s in New York, uh, we're at a dinner party where the wealthiest of New York socialites and especially authors uh, are are coming together for for a dinner party where two people are murdered uh, with a chisel to the back of the skull, like like an ice pick that would be used to like chip off ice to make a uh, an old fashioned or a drink of some sort. Um, I have a large cast. Uh, my cast uh, is of 10 players, including my detective, the host, the fiance, the famous author, the has been, the wannabe, the actor, the children's writer, there's Lewis Carroll for you, the journalist and the uninvited. The uninvited is going to be a character that's a little more like we're not exactly sure why they're here and no one exactly knows who they know or how they found out about the club. So the premise here is that each person after the murders are discovered and the detective shows up is held in a separate room of the clubhouse as the detective goes through and interviews all of them separately. So he's working his way up from the lobby of the first floor all the way up to the penthouse suite of the top third, fourth floor, whatever we want to go with. And while he's in each room, each room is kind of themed to tell the story a different way. Uh, as any whodunit would. So each room that you're into is themed according to that character's personality, and the story is told through their eyes each time Ooh. we move to a different room. Um, my my director of choice is Sam Mendez, because if I went with Ryan Johnson, that's just a friggin' that's too easy. Um, <laughs> so my director of choice is Sam Mendez. My cast of 10 um, is as follows. And this is sort of an Ocean's Eleven. This is kind of my all-star cast. It's some big names in here. My detective is played by Rachel Weiss. My host is played by Zachary Levi, uh, who it is his birthday today on the 29th as we record this. So happy 41st birthday to Zachary Levi. Um, <laughs> my The fiancé character, who is the host's fiancé, uh, is played by Carrie Mulligan. The famous author, uh, who's kind of like the big name here, uh, is played by Robert Downey Jr. 
the has-been who, you know, maybe wrote a book or two that did well 30, 40 years ago and now hasn't done anything but wants to cling to whatever high society he has, uh, is played by Willem Dafoe. Okay. The wannabe who just really wants to be a part of this group and wants to be accepted is played by Chris Pine. The actress uh, who is there just because people want to be around her because she is famous is played by Melanie Diaz, uh, who is in Fruitvale Station. Um, The children's writer will be played by Sir Ian McKellen. The journalist who shows up to... uh, Who is there, doesn't show up after the murders. They're there for the party because they're, you know, whatever, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, whatever you want to call it, uh, is played by Winston Duke. And the uninvited, who's kind of like the one character no one really knows where they came from, no one knows who they know and who they are, uh, is played by Kiernan Shipka. Ooh, um, the the title of my film so far, at least, because uh, I had trouble coming up with this one, uh, is called All Points, uh, which is a sort of not not a sort of it is a nod to APB, which is a term that cops use, which is an All Points all bulletin. Points bulletin. Um, so, so I I lost a track a little bit there. So yeah, there's a lot. There's three authors. There's a children's author, a famous author, and a has been author. Most of them are authors. So yeah. the host, the fiance, maybe not the fiance, the host, the famous author, the has been, the wannabe, and the children's writer are all authors. There's also a journalist. There's an uninvited who we don't know too much about her. There's the wannabe Chris Pine who just wants to be a part of this group. Uh, there's the detective, and then there's the actor who is not an author, but they bring her around because she's famous, and they they want to have a a name that people can relate to. All right, so what's the big twist? I don't know, <laughs> and that's where uh, our pitch would come in. Um, I purposely did not choose who the killer was, who the killers were, plural, um, because I wanted to be able to pitch that with you if we if we go through with this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I kind of stayed away from the ending because I want us to be able to bring that together. Okay. Um, so that is my movie. That is the 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 push for the premise, the theme, and uh, title cast and der- director. Um, so let's let's bring it on over to your side, Rob. What do you got? All right. Uh, my movie is called The Clockwork King. Mm, the uh, Orange Clockwork King. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my director is a uh, Danish filmmaker named Tobias Lindholm. Um, hmm. Probably known over here. He directed a bunch of episodes of Mindhunter. Ooh, um, okay. And he did um, an absolutely excellent film with Mads Mikkelsen uh, uh, in Scandinavia called The Hunt. Um, I think I remember you telling me about that one. I, I might have. It's it's a you know it's a very difficult movie to watch, uh, hmm. but it's it's very good. Mads Mikkelsen is a uh, is a teacher, basically a kindergarten teacher who is wrongfully accused of um, uh, inappropriate actions with a young student, mm. uh, like a six-year-old girl, I think. Um, and uh, even once it comes out that he didn't do this, the public perception of him essentially forever remains that mm. and ruins his life. Uh, somebody takes a shot at him while he's out walking in the woods. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a disturbing and, and, uh, deeply upsetting film but it's incredibly well made um so that's kind of where I, I wanted to go with my pitch um so i i went with london instead of new york as you can tell from many of my pitches i'm obsessed with playing around in the city of london mm-hmm. um so my leading cast uh is daniel radcliffe as a young inspector for scotland yard and rahul coley uh lately famous for the haunting of bly manor 
mm, okay. as a as a mathematician at the local university. Um, I'm thinking they probably went to school together. So there are it, it's it's loosely following the Jack the Ripper thing, but I don't want to do your classic uh, murdering prostitutes mm-hmm. and stalking the city at night kind of thing. So there are a series of murders happening throughout the city that people don't actually make a link between uh, yet because they're not all one type of person. Uh, maybe one of them is a sex worker. One of them works at the university. One of them is someone in Scotland Yard, different things like this. And essentially Daniel Radcliffe, having been pretty good at mathematics while he was at university, um, starts to feel like there is some kind of a pattern here. What, he what can... era did you say this takes place again? This, this would be in the same era as yours. In, okay. In the okay. Actual, um, so he, he begins to discern sort of esoterically that there is a pattern happening, but he can't quite make it work. So he goes to Rahul Kohli, uh, who is a kind of a mathematical prodigy, to try and begin figuring out, you know, are these linked? Yes, they do determine that they are because there's different connections between these people. And it's kind of like almost a geometry type thing. Like, you know, you see the board of connections they're making and it begins to form a very kind of perfect shape. Um, I like math. <laughs> so, uh, throughout this, we, we, we determine, uh, you know, there is a serial killer at, at large. He appears to have some sort of very specific grudge against these people who are related, but they can't, there's one, you know, mathematical variable that they're unable to put into the equation and plug it in and be able to solve the crime. And ultimately for me, it's that, uh, the mathematical professor, Rahul Kohli is actually the one doing it. Okay. Um, because new advances in mathematics are being made that he's not a part of and are not the things that he's an expert in. He has essentially lost his mind, um, hmm. thinks nothing makes sense anymore, uh, loses his sense of morality and begins murdering people connected with this, uh, a guy who is, is beginning to do uh, explorations of new geometries and things like that uh, is one of the earlier victims. Uh, he had uh, explained this to a woman that he he paid for an evening. Uh, so she goes as well, a Scotland Yard investigator who may be uh, too close to this. So yeah, it's kind of like the killer was was by your side all along kind of a story. Interesting. Um, it's it's very it's kind of like an evil, beautiful mind. Yes, yeah. I I wanted to. That's definitely one of the influences. I I always wondered like. One of my criticisms of a beautiful mind is the secondary cast is not very developed, mm-hmm. like vastly more interesting to me than seeing this guy deal with schizophrenia in and of himself is seeing what it's like, say, for his wife, played by Jennifer Connelly. Yeah. Uh, viewing these things externally to me are, are much more interesting, which is I why have, I focused I on the seen that movie in, in probably more than a decade. I should rewatch it. <laughs> it's a good little movie. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Okay. So that's that's the Clockwork King in and of itself. It's it's uh, I wanted to do. A detective story. I wanted to really explore what the methods of solving crime in that period are. Uh, fascinatingly different from today, as, as they may be. So and, your uh, your detective was uh, Radcliffe, right? Yes. And who else did you have? The the, the Raoul Cooley and any who else? Uh, that's that's the only cast Those I had put together. Yeah. And who is your director? Tobias Lindholm. What are they known for again? Mindhunter, you said. Mindhunter and. Uh, uh, the Hunt is the movie I referenced. Oh, right, the one with Matt Mickelson. Okay, I love Mindhunter. So damn good. Um, okay, I in your title, 
Uh, the Clockwork King. The Clockwork King, right. I think this is actually going to be a very easy one to pair together. Um, because it's so it mine's a whodunit, yours is a, a detective mystery, which is very similar. So I'm fine if we want to place this in London. We take away the idea that everyone is an author at the Society of Players Club, and it's it's multiple people. So you said he's a a mathematician, so we can have you know professors of mathematics and stuff there. Um, and we just have to blend the Rachel Vice detective with the Daniel Radcliffe detective, which is a weird sentence to say. Um, <laughs> um, I love Daniel Radcliffe, especially in 1800s period pieces because the woman in black. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll fully back off of that just because, you know, she is who she is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's go with Rachel Vice, but we can bring Radcliffe in as someone else. Um, so I'm making sure I write this down as we go through. So I remember who we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Rachel Vice. Uh, we'll use Daniel Radcliffe. Maybe why don't we use him as actually the host? I like that. I like that a lot. I think I think this might be very easy to combine in that I, I love your setting yeah. of this being at a, a dinner party type of thing. So if we have Rachel Vice as a detective and Daniel Radcliffe as the host and we, we keep the mathematician angle mm-hmm. that uh, that the detective brings in as an old friend from university um, to try and help figure this out to approach it from a different angle. Um I, th- I think that could be really cool to bring someone else into a very, very tight situation. So, okay. Walk me through your premise of why they were killing again. Was it just that they snapped because the, the evolution of mathematics? But yeah, because, because mathematics had moved on from them as a child prodigy uh, in that and, and the, the research that they had done uh, and then the new publishing that they had done and haven't done for some time. They haven't, put anything new out in terms of mathematical theory and are just kind of coasting on the laurels of being, being a goodwill hunting type figure. Gotcha. So advance that by 20 years. Now you're 40. You haven't published anything that has rocked the mathematical world in a very long time. You're just teaching at Oxford, I guess. So, so this is easy. Actually, we make the society of players, a club that is for socialites and high society. So he has been there before. It's not his first time because that would yes. feel a little too far-fetched. Oh, yeah. um, maybe he is a member of the club. The detective knows him through other reasons and brings him in for the murders. The club is full of all these different people, authors, mathematicians, uh, scientists, everything, yes. philosophers, and all those type of people. So we get uh, we get a murder that's the inciting incident. Yeah, who dies, I guess, essentially? Um, it can't be as quickly as someone who is also a mathematician. That'd be too easy. Yes. I mean, everybody in this club is someone who is like a, a very, very well known in their individual fields, you know, as authors and professors and actors and things like that. So yeah. what, what, how about it? It's uh, let's, let's bring in someone older and extremely well regarded as an actor and just makes you smile when you see them and they'll be say something like they're the chancellor of the university or okay, something so that's, like that. So that's the role we're going to use Sir Ian McKellen in. Of course. And <laughs> that's the person who's murdered. Okay. So I think the way we can go about this is that the opening of the film 
let's say it's two or three different conversations happening over different days. So we're not doing this whodunit in just 24 hours. The opening of the film is, let's say, three conversations, five, seven minutes each from different seasons throughout the year. That way we can establish people who are there. And then once it comes to the murders, it's not that our mathematician's character is already in the place it's a different date so the detective can bring him in yes i like it so we start off with like two or three different conversations and one of those conversations is going to be about mathematics and it's going to show we can't show his like disdain fully he has to handle you know it's the 1880s he has to handle it with class Mm -hmm. so he's definitely biting his tongue um but all three conversations let's use the other two as a red herring so we have each conversation based on something that is evolving in quote-unquote modern time that one of the people at the table do not like yes so that's gonna be easy with acting because it's just a new a new playwright who's you know not doing the classic shakespearean or exactly uh, maybe they're writing a farce or something (laughs) people are like oh what is this dribble um so yeah we have one conversation that's about mathematics it's musical theater (laughs) it's musical theater we have one conversation that's about the the changes in acting we have one conversation that's maybe about what else maybe just education in general or what other kinds of high social 1880s career paths oh i mean if we're talking about education i think we're talking about uh allowing women into into university classes yeah yeah for sure so so each of those conversations, we we don't show it, but it is the inciting incident for at least one of the characters in each of those conversations to show their disdain to kind of start feeling a little bit yeah, more I love on it. edge. Just, just putting that suspicion on everyone. And yeah. son of a bitch, Tobias Lindholm won an Oscar last year for uh, Best Foreign Language Film, uh, and the name of it was Another Round. Wait, are you serious? Yep. Son of a bitch. That's funny. That's one of our names. That is very funny. And it's um, not even the correct name. The name in Danish is binge drinking. <laughs> well, that was one of the other things I was looking at for like titles for my, I was like, oh, I'll go with Sleuth. Wait, that's a movie. Wait, I yeah. can go with Observance. Wait, that's a movie. <laughs> so friggin' many. Um, <laughs> death trap. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes, it has a trap of death. Um, so we have... Ian McKellen as the famous actor, Daniel Radcliffe as the host, Tobias. Wait, I said Tobias Lindholm. That's the director. Um, Raul Coley. I don't know how to spell that. Raul. R-A-H-U-L space K-O-H-L-I. Okay. Raul Coley as the mathematician. Rachel Weiss as the detective. Uh, who else do we want to use? So we had actor, math, detective. We can use like a philosopher. Um, do we want to bring in Downey Jr. for the philosopher? Yeah, and you mentioned an author before. We should definitely use that. Oh, then actually let's do Downey Jr. as the author, yeah. Yeah. Downey Jr. as the author. He can be he can be a children's author, but he's kind of like a very lewd individual. <laughs> yeah. Like really dirty. Yeah. Um we need some more females. Yes. Um I, I, I like was, your idea of like the outsider being Kiernan. Yeah, Schiffer. the uninvited. Um, so yeah, Kiernan is is staying. Kiernan 
Shipka. I can almost see like title plates for each of these characters with these archetypes. <laughs> for sure. Like you get a very good and that's the best thing about like whodunits. It it they stage so well as plays. So like showing this from a film standpoint as an 1880s play is like very compelling to me. Mm-hmm. Um let's I I I switched from Don Cheadle to Winston Duke for the journalist. Mm-hmm. I'd like to bring Don Cheadle back because I feel like he'd fit a little bit better. Yeah, um, well, again, as we've discussed on this podcast multiple times, whenever we do a, a period piece, we usually disregard any type of, you know, societal racisms because there's no reason we can't just cast people and not have it be a, a thing. So I'm going to use Don Cheadle as the journalist. That gives us one, two, three, four, five, six, seven people. Okay. And I think we should round it off at... Should we do eight or should we do ten? Because we're losing Ian McKellen very quickly. He's going to die. And we're going to have to kill more people, too. That's at true. least, like, two more. Um, okay. So if we're looking... If this is a club for people at the top of their games, uh, let's do politics as well. Okay. Politician. Um, continuing my and We're cast. definitely going to kill him. <laughs> continuing my cast uh we can use willem dafoe willem dafoe as the mayor of the city of london yep willem dafoe as the mayor and i had carrie mulligan we could use her as fiance still for daniel radcliffe we could i, I mean it's carrie mulligan though you kind of want her to stand on her own legs be be something more than just that yeah um <clears throat> Her father recently died, and she is now in charge of, yeah, not in so many words, but basically the British East India Company. Uh, okay. Uh, so she's like a merchant uh, tycoon. So she works for the East India Company. So then gotcha. she's business. Business. Um, three, four, five. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. That's nine. Let's round it off with one more. I had Chris Pine as the wannabe. Do we want to just keep this one guy who's like, he wants to be in this club? Yeah, he's, he's desperately trying to <laughs> to be uh, someone worthy of being in this club, yeah. And like, what is his uh, what is his profession? Uh, something with food? I was like just going to say, like a chef or a, yeah. yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So he's just like, you could try my pate, try my pate. <laughs> But it's London um, and it's the 1800s, so it's not very good. So, so it's very bad. Very poorly made. Um, director. Say, stereotypes aside, modern British food, very good. Yeah, yeah. But 1800s British food, very filled with dysentery. Eels. Eels and tripe. <laughs> um, director. I'm feeling Sam Mendes. I don't know if you have any inkling on Tobias as, a, uh, as your pitch. Um, I'm trying to imagine each. I do feel like Sam Mendes is better with larger groups. Yeah. Um, everything I've seen from Tobias Lindholm is very is deeply personal, introspective character stuff. So yeah, I would go with Sam Mendes. Okay. Which means we could have used Tobias for um, the Collier Brothers film. <laughs> uh, oh man, that would have been amazing. Yeah, we. I actually we got to visit the micro park. 
We need to, yeah, we do. We we also need to actually sit down and work on one of these scripts, um, whichever one that is, or if it's our own. Um, <laughs> it's so much fun bouncing from idea to idea. I know it is, but we got to actually do the work at some. <laughs> but point. sitting down and actually doing the yeah. work—that's rough, man. This um, is—it's like in Dungeons and Dragons, you roll up a character and you're excited to play it, and you get through one session, and you're like, "I want to make another character now." I've never <laughs> yeah, made, I've never made a tiefling. <laughs> Um, okay, so let's plot this a little bit. We have mm-hmm. our cast. So th- basically, it's just my plot with your with your idea. Um, they're a part of this society in London. It's like a brownstone in downtown London. They have these three conversations up front to give us sort of inklings of the inciting incident. We immediately kill. The first murder is going to be in McKellen. Yes. He is killed. I don't know why it's the first thing that came out to me was just like an ice pick used for like, you know, chipping ice for a a, a cocktail. Oh, Um, that I fucking love that. Yeah. So he's like, he's like that's shoved into his neck or the back of his head or something like that. Yes. Um, And he was the actor. So, so I'm thinking like, okay, so if it's the 1880s, I guess electric lighting would not be in preponderance here. I guess gaslight. Yeah. Yeah, would be it. So, I want to hold that in our back pocket for a way that, that to kill someone. Yeah, for sure. Gaslighting. <laughs> Gaslighting. Uh, um, <laughs> um. Yeah. No. That's that's great. Um. Because there's so many, and especially in like, I don't know if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever been to like one of these like society clubs that like were founded so far back when, and like just the the the. I don't know the the architecture and the furnishing it's so very classical and there's so much we can do with it you know yeah. there's always the giant fireplace that's like six feet tall oh yeah so you got a fire poker or something like that and I think it would be interesting if we had not I wouldn't say like super gory like but we should have sort of, sort of like grisly deaths Oh, yeah, because it's not like we want to show that these people aren't just, oh, high society is so classy and blah, blah. No, they're like they're friggin grisly murders because these people yeah. are out of their mind. If they get poisoned, then they're fucking projectile vomiting yes. blood over the table. Yeah, you are going <laughs> to see their eyes bleed very quickly. Yeah. What do we call <sighs> this club? I mean, I just called it the Society of Players, um, like but it. you like it? Yeah, it's not bad. Okay. So I can go with that. The question is, so how do we, okay. So how do we go about the idea of moving room to room? Should we theme each character's room now? Like, should we give a little bit of a, you know, a teaser into what those rooms might be? Do you think we should do that during the intro of, of characters telling stories about their disapproval of uh, new things in their field? How so? Well, I'm just, I'm just not sure how to do it like after a murder has happened. Well, the, the idea I had was that the detective actually rounds everybody up and puts them in separate rooms so that they can't, um, what's it called? They can't, uh, work on their story together. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. That's, that's a good mechanism to get people to different places. Yeah. So the idea was literally that our detective, Rachel vice is going from room to room and each room is the person telling their, their story about what happened. Mm-hmm. And obviously, because it's a whodunit, each story is sort of not vastly different, but there are different things like in between, like small stuff that that's obviously different. Um, yeah. 
And I just, I wasn't exactly sure, but I wanted each room to kind of pair with the character, whether that's just thematic in terms of like coloring, clothing and things like that, or if it is some type of blend of personality with the room. Yeah, I think it's going to be a tall order to, I mean, this is the thing that theme park designers do over the course of a year. So I think it's going to be difficult (laughs) to come up with like what a room is and what's in it uh, on a deep thematic level. I think... I think you might be on a, a better track there with color and costume. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like I was watching this documentary behind the scenes of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Ooh, cool. Uh, the Francis Ford Coppola movie where uh, they were talking about the costumes on and on and, and, and how you know gorgeous they were. And at some point someone said the costumes are the sets. Hmm. Uh, that's why we didn't go all ham on, on all these backgrounds. The costumes yeah. are the sets. That's cool. what you should be looking at. So I, th- I think that's a, a good track to go on to pair people to these rooms in terms of color and cut and, and texture and design. Yeah, I like that. Um, and it's got to be sort of subtle. It can't be just like clue, you know, Colonel but, Mustard yellow. <laughs> yes, but a subtle hint is that our mathematician's room does not 100% thematically Match line up with him. Oh, that's perfect. he is not in the space that he should be in his head. Yes. Oh my God. That's brilliant. It's just in the kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) They just put him in the kitchen. Yep. (laughs) Doesn't matter. He does not get that treatment because he is like, (laughs) he was like invited here provisionally as a guest just to see what's up. And he is not, he is not good for this fucking club. The, the most interesting part of this is something we do have to discuss a little bit more is Kiernan Shipka. Mm hmm. What do we do with her? Oh, yeah. She's essentially our, our flopping red herring. Yeah. Yeah, for <laughs> right, sure. Because who are you and what are you doing here? Well, I was invited. By who? One of them. <laughs> I don't know. It was a letter. <laughs> yeah. So they're, maybe they... Maybe Probably she's, a thief. <laughs> could be. Yeah. Maybe she's actually going room to room. Maybe she's not staying put in one spot. Yeah. They can't contain her. They can't contain her, and she's sort of She like, found secret passages. Yeah, and she's kind of like blending in with everyone else's area. Ooh. Um, yeah, I like that. So we kill in McKellen. Sorry, sir. Um, then I think the others we kill, Willem Dafoe. Yep. And then I think there should be a final one. I'm... Th- so, so I, I, the motivation I had for the murders was essentially trying to prevent um, something happening regarding the university that Rahul Cooley doesn't want to happen. So mm-hmm. definitely getting rid of, of Ian McKellen, who I think is a, a, such a prestigious actor, was probably going to be appointed honorary chancellor of the university. Sure. Uh, the mayor of London, of course, you know, that has something to do with education. So who else uh, could we get that would have something to do with what he's thinking? I mean, we could do if we just make any of them along with their profession, also a professor at the university. So I was thinking like Downey Jr. as an author. Maybe he's. Yeah. They're all lecturers there. In, some, in some fashion. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They're all doing their own 1880s yeah. TED Talks. Oh, uh, I, I hate to do this, but Don Cheadle as a journalist might be might be the way to go. He's got he's got to go. I think I think so. Just because maybe he was going to write something about the about you know up there's this new upcoming publishing and they're going to reorganize the math department and the new chancellor's coming in and doing this and this and the mayor's going to give a speech you know what uh, we do yeah we have him in each of the conversations at the beginning and he's writing a piece on each of those conversations yes 
That way we still don't know who's doing what. We just know that he's the one that's ruffling the feathers. Yep. Love it. Um, yeah, that's great. So our end is that how does how does our detective discover it? Hmm. Let's see. Because I, I, I think, you know, I, I had pitched the concept of, of them being friends from when they were attending university. Yes. And her having been pretty good at math. I can't think of a mathematical way to solve a crime, or maybe it's just not even that far. She is just really good at patterns and is over the course of the film. She always writes things down okay. on individual pieces, small pieces of paper and is always arranging them in front of her. And like the aha moment is like, she's moving all these different like clues and stories around and she arranges them into a certain shape. Hmm. Like like a, a crystalline looking structure, and then it all sort of clicks in her head. Hmm. I like it. That's like interesting. To be able to visually do that, I think we could do it. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's good. And then, how are we actually ending it? Does she just get her man? Yeah, I, th- I think uh, I think you know she she arrested the the whole party goes up into this absolute hubbub, and people are. You know, screaming at each other because throughout the course of the film, they've been accusing each other and, and undermining each other. And, you know, really nasty shit has been revealed about these people over the course of the film. Right. And in the midst of this just hubbub happening in the background, Kieran and Shipka just takes like a couple of fucking silver candlesticks and gets the fuck out of Dodge. <laughs> I like it. She was literally that she just got she happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's literally all it was. Yep. <laughs> That's great. Um, awesome. Title. Uh, what were yours? I had all points. That was the only one I came up with. Points is good. And mine was the Clockwork King. Hmm. The Clockwork. The only problem with Clockwork King is that that it's probably far fetched, but it would make me immediately think, okay, the killer is going to be one of the men. Yeah. Um. Just because it's all genderized. Um. Let's see. Something to do with mathematics. Something to do with high society. High do society you, mathematics. <laughs> do you like polite society? Isn't that a movie? Or isn't that a play? Did um, I make that up? Blah, 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 blah. Sorry, my keyboard's really loud, folks. Um, it's not a movie. I'm not sold on it. Um... Polite society, society of players. Terms of hmm. what's 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 what are some mathematic terms? Hmm. Mathematic terms. <laughs> Order of operations. <laughs> that could work. Um, every time I start something like that, it's always like the easiest things, like addition, subtraction. Um, something with abstract maybe I like it I like it let's see the oh something with complex for complex mathematics Ooh, and also the complexity yes, of the mind yes um, complex the something complex. The something concept. The 
Oh, we're we're so fucking close. I know it's right fucking there. Um, the blank complex. If only this was live. Tweet us what you think the title should be. Uh, um, the uh, complex. <laughs> it's 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 like undoing the combination for your locker, and you've got two out of the three codes, <laughs> and you forget the last goddamn one. And you know you're so close. Um, the society complex formal actually that society complex could work because it's talking about high society and how math is evolving and how he doesn't want it to because he's going to be replaced yes okay yeah yeah all right write it down before we before we screw this up (laughs) the society complex all right i think we have ourselves a movie whoo boy this was this was actively the process of cracking a case. So we did. I it. mean, <laughs> legit. That was very. Uh, I mean, it's a whodunit. That wasn't going to be an easy pitch. Like yeah. the premise, sure, that'll be easy. But everything else, not that was, so easy. It was a difficult birth. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad we got there. Yeah. Um, folks, thanks for listening. Uh, as I said, this is episode 37. Uh, come episode 40, we're trying to do guest stars for each 10. So on the start of 40 and then 50, et cetera. Um, we'll probably announce who that guests will be come. I guess we'll probably announce it the episode before. So episode yeah. 59, look forward to that. We don't want to count all of our eggs before we've recorded them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> speaking of eggs. Um, no, I have nothing. I don't know where I was. Going uh, that. <laughs> I, I almost just fucking panicked because there's a lot of places that could have gone. <laughs> Not the place you're thinking. Um, you don't this... know what I'm thinking. I guarantee you. <laughs> next next episode will be episode 38. The pick will be Rob's. Um, again, as always, please send us articles, uh, ideas, choices you have, conspiracy theories you found. This one was a conspiracy theory. If you have some interesting ones we might not have heard from, um, don't give us the obvious ones. You know, JFK, moon landing, it's been done to death. But if you have some conspiracy theories out there that maybe you think is pretty crazy and uh, hasn't been discussed as much, uh, we'd love to pitch that. Um, So whatever you guys come up with, you know where to find us. Facebook, Twitter, WDYGpodcast at Gmail. You can... Mail us your information, your questions, record your own podcast, and we'll share something. We'd love to do a, le- uh, a listener's episode. So if you want to send in questions or pitches, we'd love to do an entire episode just dedicated to that. Um, I-, I would actually like to start thinking about that a little bit more seriously, getting oh, yeah. together a listener's episode. Um, so I might even we might even post on uh, on Facebook about it. Just send in a quick, like, I don't know, five-minute pitch of something, and we'd love to just read those out throughout an episode. Uh, other than that, I don't think I have anything else, Rob. Oh, no, that's, uh, that about covers the bases. Um, okay. Yeah. We're heading into fall. I'm very excited. I'm a sweater and hoodie guy. Oh my God. Me too. (laughs) It's nice and chilly out today. Yes. So happy. And ideally when Nick and I go on vacation in November, we'll have something in the bank. So (laughs) yes. Yeah. We, we hopefully will. Um, that way we don't miss anything out too much. Um, Guys, thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this one. It's our first Who Done It. That was an interesting one. Um, yeah. Well, until next time, I've been Rob. I've been Nick. And that's what we got. What do you got? filmed in front of a live studio audience. <laughs> 
What Do You Got is recorded live at the Cape Swoosh Studios in Bloomfield, New Jersey. Our theme song was written and performed by Trevor Campbell. Additional music is provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. And our wonderful logo was designed by Gabby Weiss. You can find her on Twitter at, at Gabby Weiss. 